All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome back to Neighborhood Church. Here this morning. Yeah. My name is Carrie. I'm the pastor of Connection and Discipleship here, and it's good to have you guys all here. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to. Um, welcome back in here. Um, excited to dive into God's Word with you this morning, and uh, did, any, did everyone have a good Valentine's Day? Hopefully. Good weekend in general? Yeah, okay. Um, I, I'm thinking back, this is kind of a long time ago by now, feels like a long time ago, but did anyone enjoy the Super Bowl? You had a good time watching that yeah. two Sundays ago? Yeah. So, so if, for some of you that were here, you may remember uh, I got to preach on that Sunday, on Super Bowl Sunday. And on the stage, I told all, everyone here that my family was born and raised 49ers fans. And so two weeks ago, I got to watch them lose the Super Bowl. So, <laughs> that, so that happened. I told everyone, and then, then they lost. So... <laughs> So I'm still licking my wounds, you know, they're, they're healing slowly. But um, I, as I was watching that game and, and thinking again about football, I just was thinking, man, I would hate to be one of those players where like the whole game is just hinging on you, you know? Like think about what it would be like to be one of those football kickers. You know, you're spending most of the game on the sidelines and then until that one moment where the coach calls you forward and he's like, all right, we need these three points to win the game or we're going to lose. So you, you have one job, kick this ball through that field goal. And if you screw it up, the entire team loses because of you. And everyone, millions of people are watching you lose the game for us. So Oh, the pressure, right? Oh, I, I would just hate that. So, I, but sometimes we've been in circumstances where one person kind of ruins it for the rest of us, right? Not all of us have been NFL kickers, but, uh, you know, let's say maybe your sibling crashes the car and so no one gets to drive the car anymore. Or maybe uh, you you uh, had some coworkers that uh, started to abuse the, uh, the loose lunch policy and now everyone has to clock in and clock out before and after. Or uh, there's a company... Uh, in your industry that started to uh, started to play some legal loopholes and now everyone has new strict regulations put on in your industry. Maybe it's just the street uh, in your neighborhood. Everyone's speeding down that one street and now there's speed bumps on that street that everyone has to drive really slow. <laughs> so you can kind of see this analogy where there's, there's, there's sometimes a, a person or a small group of people that can kind of make a big influence and maybe ruin it for the rest of us. Um, sometimes uh, that can happen, and uh, sometimes we attribute those kind of fears to what happens in our spiritual life, too. And not often are we always talking in terms of, like, group-centric thinking, where one small group or one individual does something and the rest of the group suffers. But sometimes this does happen, like those examples. And in the first century, when the New Testament was written, and most of the Bible times, this was super a prevalent way of thinking, that the, what, what one person does reflects on the whole group. And so one of the questions that the Roman Christians in the first century had for Paul had to do with this idea. If one person screws up or does something wrong, is, 
Does it ruin it for the whole rest of the bunch? And so we're going to dive back into the book of Romans, and you'll kind of see what we're talking about here as we do. I'd encourage you as you turn to Romans um, that it would be great if you picked up one of our study guides. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Romans, maybe you haven't been in our series uh, up until now, or you forgot a few things, there's some great resources on our study guide about where the book of Romans comes from, how it was written, and all that stuff. So you can get that at our lobby's table, right on the resource table out there. You can also find it at cypresschurch.com slash study guide or on your church app. So lots of resources for you there. So we are in Romans. Just by a quick way of overview, there was lots of conflict in the church of Rome because there was a faction of Jewish folks and a faction of Gentile, i.e. non-Jewish folks, and they sometimes had a hard time getting along. So Paul wrote Romans in some part to say, you guys need to be unified. And what's the basis of Christian unity? It all boils back to the good news about Jesus, i.e., in a word, the gospel. So he shares that with them, and two weeks ago on Sunday, we were in Romans chapter 9, verses uh, verse. 30 through chapter 10, verse 21, and he gave us a few examples of where he was leading this argument about Christian unity and Jews and Gentiles and all that stuff. So what he had shared with them, they're reading Paul's letter and they're like, uh, Paul, I'm confused. How come those Jewish folks chose to join the church and, and then these Jewish folks didn't join us? What's, all, what's that all about? How could any good Jewish person descended from God's own chosen nation not be ing- included in God's true people now? And as we learned from what Paul wrote in chapter 10 two weeks ago when we went looked at that, a person can only become right with God by trusting in his promised Messiah as Lord. So that answer actually brought some new questions, though. So now they're, they've finished chapter 10, and they're like, okay, all right, all right, I got it, Paul, thanks. So no matter who you are or how nice, to get right with God, trust in Christ. Okay, but since a majority of the Jewish people didn't trust in Christ, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, is God going to reject Israel? Are some Israelites going to ruin it for the rest of the bunch? And it was a big question. Because God had had this special, unique relationship with the nation of Israel for centuries up to this point. So were they breaking up? Was God moving on? Let's explore what Paul has to say about this in Romans chapter 11. So if you're not there already, I'd love for you to follow along. There's ushers that are going to come down the aisles with some Bibles. Feel free to raise up your hand and just borrow one of those. You can leave it on your seat when you take off later today, but we'd love to be in scripture together. So Romans 11 verse 1, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, and let's dive into verse 1 where Paul kicks it off here. He says, he addresses the elephant in the room when he says in Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And this was a fair question to assume his audience wanted to know because he had just said in Romans 10.21 that Israel was a disobedient and contrary people. And all they had to do was look around them in their first century context and be like, whoa, a bunch of those Jewish people didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. What's with that? Is God through with Israel? Paul says in 11 verse 1, by no means. He's saying, no way. God is absolutely not done with Israel. He's not rejected them. And then he gives us four bits of proof to show why that is true. The first one is in verse 1, the second half of verse 1. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul 
Paul was an Israelite and he accepted Jesus as the Messiah God sent. And so he's clear an example of God not rejecting every Israelite person because he's, he's in God's family now. You can see a, a family tree on the screen where uh, Paul is of the tribe of Benjamin and then it's all the way up through Abraham. So Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then uh, Abraham is kind of the founding father of the Jewish nation. And so if anyone was Jewish, it was Paul. But he ended up accepting Jesus as the Messiah, God sent. So he's saying, yeah, God still lets Israelites, God's still here for Israelites. I'm one of the examples. So that is one way that we can know that God has not rejected Israel. Paul, (laughs) in some sense, Paul can say, hey, who's got two Jewish thumbs and a place in God's family? This guy. So Paul's saying, I'm proof right here. Next, a second proof. Verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he for." new. Okay, what does for new mean? That's not something we typically use in modern language. So let's look back to the context. For new actually was used in Romans 8 uh, in verse 29. God says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So this God is saying he knew ahead of time who he was going to individually save into his eternal kingdom. This is a, this four new word is used in Romans 8, 29 in the context of a whole bunch of words that all have to do with the steps of salvation, how God draws people into his eternal family and his true people. So we would think, okay, four new, so God's going to predestine all of Israel to be saved. But here, four new in Romans eleven two talks about how God has actually set aside and chosen his people, his group, as a way of a special blessing to them. They are his special chosen people. So it's not in terms of salvation here in Romans eleven two like it was back in 8.29. But he's still saying, I knew my chosen people from the very beginning. Israel can't have been rejected by God if they were his chosen nation still, and they still were. So if you're taking notes on your uh, sermon outline, that's our second point. Um, It's God's chosen nation. So he's not rejecting Israel. He wasn't about to abandon them now, despite their disobedience. He's so (laughs) knowledgeable to, to know this ahead of time. And he's also so kind. God went out of his way to choose and protect and preserve a people for himself, despite their confusion and their disobedience. That, that's kindness. That's a God that's worthy, worthwhile worshiping. Paul goes on to a third proof here. And his third proof is the second half of verse two. He starts with a question. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? And Paul, being a good Jewish teacher, is always asking these questions that are really just rhetorical questions. They're statements. Because the Jewish people, anyone in his audience who grew up Jewish would have known, oh yeah, I know the stories about Elijah, of course. And Elijah was this prophet in the Old Testament centuries before this New Testament context of Romans. And it's in 1 Kings, if you want to look it up, 1 Kings 17 through 22. So Elijah's this prophet called by God, and his main mission was to look to Israel's corrupt leaders, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and and say, hey, you guys are corrupt. We need to clean up Israel. 
The reason why they were corrupt is because they took all the prophets of God, assassinated them, and replaced them with prophets of Baal, pagan worship, and had the whole nation worship idols instead. So pretty bad guys. You can tell that they're not walking for God, but then Elijah accuses them. And they're like, yeah, we're not fans of you, Elijah, because you're calling us out. And so there's this conflict in 1 Kings 17 to 22. And it all boils down to this showdown on Mount Carmel. This is 1 Kings chapter 18. So Elijah has all the prophets of Baal, this pagan guy, say, hey, you guys call down fire from heaven. He's the God of lightning, Baal, huh? So have him call down fire and burn up this sacrifice on an altar you've made. They try for hours. Nothing happens. And then Elijah comes over in here and he's like, hey God, can you help me out with some fire? And God sends this inferno down from the sky, burns up all of Elijah's sacrifice that had been soaked in water before, wipes the altar clean. All of the Israelites standing there on the mountain are like, hmm. Okay, clearly God's more powerful, so he's the right one to choose. So they join Elijah, they sack the prophets of Baal, and things are just this great victory for God. But then the queen finds out, Queen Jezebel, and she writes a little memo to Elijah. She says, hey, Elijah, just so you know, I'm going to kill you like I did all those other prophets. You are dead meat. And Elijah, afraid for his life, he flees the country. He runs. He's like, oh gosh, I'm in for it now. But God is not done with him. So even though he flees into the desert and uh, it says in 1 Kings 19 verse 8 that he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, down in the southern uh, desert. And God brings him there and then God brings him to the top of the mountain and there in a gentle whisper, close and caring, God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then Elijah, in the midst of seeing his entire nation falling apart and his whole ministry just seemed to have no effect. And he says, he says to God in 1 Kings 19, 14, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life now to take it away. He's saying, what has happened to your people, Lord? What has happened to my people? Is there any hope for Israel? Are you done with us? And then God, God responds. God is in control. He first tells Elijah, I hear you, but I'm going to commission you to raise up new leaders that are going to take out Ahab and Jezebel and establish new, better leadership. I'm going to have you commission people who are going to bring justice to all those who have oppressed my people. And get this, number three, in 1 Kings 19, verse 18, he says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. He says, Elijah, you're not alone. You are not in this alone. There's 7,000 people that I have kept faithful to me. And they are going to be the way that Israel is going to continue on through history. And so we see here that God establishes a remnant. 
a small portion of his original Israelite people, a few individuals that are still loyal, still faithful to him, and that is the means by which he can continue Israel forward, trusting in him. So he would do this. God would, uh, all these things would come true in the next decade, and God would preserve a faithful few remnant for him uh, all the way through history, all the way up to the time of the Messiah in the first century. So it all came true, and, and so... Paul, when he's back here in Romans 11, thinking back to this account with Elijah, it's in verse 3 and 4, he's saying, man, Elijah was accusing Israel, saying, God, they've all left you behind. They're not faithful to you. And then God replies to him in verse 4, I've kept for myself 7,000 men, not bowed the knee to Baal. And God's saying, yeah, but I got this remnant who is faithful to me. And so Paul shares that with his first century readers to show that God established this precedent of keeping a remnant faithful to him. Isn't it cool how God is so forgiving and so patient? Even though a whole bunch of Israel had blown it back in Elijah's day, he's like, no, 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 I'm gonna have a group of faithful people that's gonna help the nation continue forward with me. That is so cool. He, God would have been just to reject Israel back like they rejected him, but he didn't. Do you see the parallels here between the prophet Elijah maybe and the apostle Paul in the first century? The apostle Paul faced a similar situation. He's like, all right, well, born and raised Jewish and I love you and then I found the Messiah, but man, my people Israel they killed your son on the cross, Jesus. Oh my gosh. And they, they've persecuted your followers for the last couple decades now. And sometimes I feel like I'm the only Jewish faithful guy left who actually believes in your son. And to be honest, a lot of the cities I enter in, in, in first century Rome and I try to share about Jesus, the Jewish people there want to kill me. They run me out of town. They're, they're throwing stones at me and beating me. God, am I the only one left? Are you, are you through with Israel? And so Paul's fourth proof for why God is not through with Israel, are in, it's in verses five through six here in chapter 11. He says, so too, just like in Elijah's time, so too at the present time, there is a remnant even now in the first century. And all of Paul's audience, all they would have to do is just look around their first century Roman church. Oh yeah, there's my Jewish brother and sister in Christ. We're all Christians. They're Jewish. I'm non-Jewish, but they were all in the same church together. That's proof that there's a remnant. They are part of God's remnant, the Jewish people that are continuing to know and love God by following his son, the Messiah. And so the proof was right there. If you're taking notes again, God's Jewish Christian remnant proves he's not rejected Israel as a whole. The first century church did have a remnant of Israelites within it. So as Paul's writing that, that would beg the question though, and his readers might say, okay, uh, so then why did these, these friends of ours here in the church, why did those Jewish people accept Jesus and those other people didn't? What's the di- why, why is there a difference here? We see at the end of verse five, that they were chosen by grace. So this first century Jewish remnant had been privileged, it had been elected, it had been handpicked by God. And yet second, this Jewish remnant had been chosen out of grace 
because of God's grace. And Paul goes on to describe what that grace means in verse six. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So he's saying, hey, all these people were chosen by God, and it isn't because these Jewish folks deserved it. It isn't because of like their lineage or their heritage or their past. It isn't because they did a lot of good stuff or they were really good people or they had great intentions. It's none of that. It's totally due to God just being gracious and saying, hey, I chose you guys. And it's due to my, to God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And so we look at that and we just learn about God. Wow. He is so generous. He's so generous that when they didn't deserve it, he didn't have to save them, but he did. He's so kind. So like the title of our message today, it's out of God's patience that Israel continues to exist. It's because of his patience. So since a majority of people in the Jewish nation rejected Jesus, will God reject his people Israel? And Paul says, no, God's remnant proves that God will patiently preserve part of Israel. Now, by way of illustration, remember Noah's Ark? A lot of us who grew up in church are like, oh yeah, the Ark that's full of animals, it's Noah's floating zoo. And you know, we had the little animals and stuff as we grew up. Um, But a lot of the children's curriculum doesn't talk about why God flooded the entire earth and there had to be an Ark (laughs) because it's kind of dark. What happened is in Genesis 6 is that God talks about how mankind, humanity, had become so corrupt and so violent that he needed to just reboot the whole thing. So does God say, all right, I'm just wiping the slate clean. Adam and Eve 2.0, we're starting this whole thing over again. (laughs) He doesn't. Why doesn't he? Because he had made promises to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3 verse 15. He had promised Eve that one of her descendants would end up being raised up and would crush the head of the serpent. That one of her descendants would finally come at the right time in history and deal with evil and Satan once and for all. So God makes that promise to Eve and he's gonna hold true to his promise. So what does he do? He makes a remnant. Noah and his family. He preserved them. And even though every other human had rejected him, God kept these faithful few. And through them, humanity could continue forward. So you can see the parallels maybe with Israel. God had this relationship with Israel. Most of them had rejected his first century Messiah he sent. So was he through with Israel? No, God had made promises to them throughout the Old Testament. And one example is 1 Samuel 12, 22. He says, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God stayed true to his chosen race. And he did so by preserving a remnant. Even though most of Israel had rejected his son, God kept a faithful few and through them, Israel could continue. Have you ever felt like you're one of the only ones that loves Jesus in your family? Have you ever felt like, man, I'm the only guy at work or the only guy in my friends or the the only gal in my neighborhood that seems to love Jesus? I would encourage you that 
That's not true. Like Elijah and Paul, they felt like they were the only ones left. And then God gave them both a way to see that there were others around them. God had preserved a remnant of people around them. They were not alone. And God's people would go forward. So I would just say, be encouraged by that in your context too. There will always be faithful people to God until Jesus returns. His, uh, Jesus' worldwide church is going to have to adapt as times change and, and dodge and, and, and re- rework things and stuff, but it will not and cannot be stopped or eradicated. And Jesus said that himself in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. That's an encouraging thought. Now, we've been talking a lot about God's relationship with Israel so far today. And we talked a lot about the Jewish people uh, two weeks ago when we were back in Romans uh, then too. And so you might be thinking, like last, last time, if you were here, or maybe just this time too, thinking, okay, I mean, I'm saved and I'm not Jewish, so who cares? Can we get to Romans 12? I mean, like, I, does that even apply to me? Like, so first of all, Let's go back. God is the God of the Jewish nation of the Old Testament. And he is the God, and that's the same God that we serve today. And so as we even look here in the New Testament, God still has a special place in his heart for Israel. And so if we are children of God, like John 1.14 says, then we should take a tip from our heavenly father and love who he loves. Second of all, Romans 11 1 through 10 also teaches us just more about God's heart in general and his people. So as instead of these verses making us indifferent or bored we should, or confused, we should look at these verses and be like, wow, God is so patient with his people. God is so kind. He's so forgiving. Wow. And then respond in praise. God's remnant proves that God will patiently preserve part of Israel Though they deny him, God is still true. He's patient with them and also with you. Now Paul turns to the rest. Here in verses 7 through 10, he's going to close up these ideas. So he starts in verse 7. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? We learned from chapter 9 and 10, righteousness, i.e. a right standing with God, being on good terms with God again. They didn't, they failed to obtain that. Why? Because Israel was divided into two factions. And here's how Paul defines that. First, he says, um, in verse 7, second half, he says, the elect obtained it. They got a good standing with God, but the rest were hardened. So he says, some Israelite individuals got good with God, righteousness, but then others didn't, the rest. They stubbornly refused a right relationship with God. So these two factions that he's defining here, that explains why there were two different Jewish responses in the first century. Why did some people accept Jesus as the Messiah and some people rejected him? What what, what gives with that? It's because there's these two groups. And some Israelites, it says here in verse 7, were chosen to follow him. That's why they're called the elect. And some were chosen not to. Now, theologians for the last couple hundred years have called this uh, the doctrine of reprobation. Just as God decreed before time who would accept and follow Jesus, he also destined others 
not to. It's not a super popular teaching, but that's what Paul says here. And so we learn more about God from this passage in verse 7 again, that God is in control. He knows what he's doing. Now, I can imagine a couple people in Paul's audience saying, what? We don't get that. And like, I'm not sure if I like that. And (laughs) Paul, where are you getting this stuff from? Are you like, where is this coming from? And so Paul, like almost the entirety of Romans and most of his writings, he goes and shows how these are not his original ideas. They're coming from the Old Testament all along. He says, it is written there in verse 8. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then in verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 69:22 to 23 and he says, "Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever." Now, who wrote Psalm 69 that he's quoting here in verses 9 and 10? He gives us the hint. It was David. So David back in his day was being persecuted by his enemies and being harmed and hurt and run after and he's saying Psalm 69, God, please rain judgment down on these people because they're persecuting me. Please handle that. Please bring justice. Paul here is saying that is what is applied to our day now. So God is taking that same justice and he's applying it to the people who rejected or persecuted Jesus, David's ancestor. Who are the people who persecuted Jesus? I don't know, maybe the people who killed him. And also the people who dismissed him as the Messiah for why he came. So with this final quotation, all from the Old Testament, Paul has made his case. No one should be surprised that there is a rest of Israel. That a faction of Israel would not get saved. It had been predicted, and that's your your blank again. It was predicted in the Old Testament. And it was predicted in all three key Jewish parts of the Old Testament. The law, Deuteronomy, the prophets, Isaiah, and the writings, Psalm 69. So it's this cohesive prediction that was already in Scripture. So here in verses 7 through 10, Paul indirectly shows that God continues to be patient with Israel He hasn't rejected Israel overall because only the rest will be released. The very existence of the rest implies that there is a remnant, people who still pledge allegiance to God and the son that he sent as Messiah. So he's answered our question again for us. Since a majority of Jewish people rejected Jesus, how will will God reject his people Israel? God's remnant and the rest both prove God will patiently preserve part of Israel. Though they deny him, God stays true. He's patient with them and he's patient with you. So by way of illustration, again, think of a garden. For those of us that like to garden or uh, 
if you're good at it, um, <laughs> a garden continues onward if there's plants that keep growing in it. So you got flowers in it and you also got weeds in it that you have to take out. So as a garden moves forward, new flowers keep arising in each season and new weeds keep arising that need to be taken out each season. But as new plants keep rising up and new flowers keep coming and dying and growing again, the same garden is progressing forward. Even though there's individual flowers that keep coming up, it's the same garden. And so that's kind of a way to illustrate that this is this is kind of how it is with Israel as as Israel is kept going by God by this remnant there are individuals who keep joining God's remnant and keep coming into God's eternal family and because of that remnant Israel as a whole is able to continue forward even among us non-Jewish people today this is good news Because God's the same today as he was in the Old Testament, the same today as he was in the New Testament, and right now. And so our creator is still maintaining remnants of faithful followers to help his people go forward. And there's still time for someone, for anyone, to join his eternal family. If you are breathing, there is still a chance that you can step in and receive Jesus as the Messiah and be part of God's family for eternity and all the joy and healing and hope that comes with that. And it's, the awesome thing is it's all due to God. God is never out of patience with us in this life as we're trying to figure out how to get to him. We can always come running back to him. The prodigal son parable in John 15 is totally evidence of that. And also, evidence of that is Paul's own story. Paul's own life is a testimony to how God is so patient with us, where he was an enemy of the church and persecuting Christians, and now here he is writing about how he loves and is defending Jesus Christ to all of these guys in Rome. Just amazing. Paul knew God's patience from firsthand experience. So, maybe... We've talked about garden, we talked about Paul, we talked about patience, but maybe we lost you back in verse seven. Maybe we lost you after we talked about Israel's hearts being hardened. What? How could God destine part of Israel to reject Jesus? How could God be so, so, so mean? Doesn't God want everyone to be saved? And isn't he powerful enough to save everybody? And isn't God love? So what gives? These are great questions worth asking. And that's why Pastor Mike is going to answer all of them next Sunday um, when he's here. Um, (laughs) I wish. (laughs) No, Pastor Mike is on vacation, but he is excited to be back here next Sunday and to share from God's word with us. But we're going we're gonna to dive in here a little bit on those today. So don't worry. <laughs> these, are, these are good questions to dive into. And I, we need to because there are so many today that feel these beliefs. They're untrendy. They're sometimes unclear. And sometimes they're just downright unsettling. How could Paul defend ideas like this? Well, first of all, Paul already described this in Romans chapter 9. So if we go back two chapters, Romans chapter 9, verse 14, he says, 
what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God not fair? He says, by no means. No. Verse 14, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What he's saying is no human deserves heaven. Those whom God lets in have his mercy to thank. It's because of his compassion that they're there, not because they earned it. So God is not mean or stingy to keep people out of heaven. Due to all of our rebellion, all of our sin, all of our rejection, he's actually incredibly generous to let anybody in. And the good news is, is that he does. He does let people in. He has been letting people into heaven by the millions for centuries. That is how generous God is. Well, another thought raised here, another objection is that how could a loving God harden some Israelite hearts? Well, think about this question and response. Is it loving to force a certain kind of future on somebody if they don't even want it? Why would people who had already rejected Jesus want to spend an eternity with Jesus in heaven? Author C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him, wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. um, And he has this quote up on the screen. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And then he quotes Jesus Christ himself. He says, those who seek will find. Those who are truly looking for Jesus will find him. A third way to grasp um, this hardening of Israel um, is uh, through a parable that Jesus himself taught. So let's go check that out too. Uh, It's back in Matthew chapter 21 and Jesus is talking with all of his disciples and he says, hey, here's a parable in Matthew 21, 33. There was a master of a house. This is God the father who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a tower. This is his nation, Israel. And he leased it to tenants. These are the Israelites. And he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one. They killed another. They stoned another. These are God's prophets that he kept sending to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament history. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Any guesses on who this son is? It's Jesus, God's son, whom he did send in history. So verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, Israelites saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And then we'll have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And that's what the nation of Israel did. After Jesus had been on the scene for three years, the Jewish leaders used their soldiers to arrest Jesus, hand him over to Rome and say, this guy's treasonous, kill him on the cross. And then he was. Verse 40, 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes back, God the Father, what will he do with those tenants? Israel. Jesus' disciples are following along with this parable and they're like, oh man, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death. Yeah. If you kill God's boy, expect his wrath. And then it says, God let out the vineyard, he rented the vineyard to other tenants, the Gentiles, who will give him the fruit in its seasons. Jesus was speaking about Israel here. And it's clear from verse 45, the Jewish leaders who were listening to this parable be said out loud, they knew it was about them. Does it seem unfair that God would release the rest of Israel when they mistreated his prophets like this? When they treated his son like this? If they actually don't want to be a part of God's true people, releasing them, hardening their hearts, is merely God granting their own wishes. And here in Matthew 21, Jesus is predicting all of this that's about to happen. Now, I know what we've covered here may not have answered all your questions. So I would encourage you again, go ahead and pick up that study guide on our website or in our lobby. There's some more resources about this, these kind of topics. But these study guides are great and most of our life groups use them to launch into their small group Bible studies midweek. And man, I would encourage you too, if you're not in a life group yet, speaking of these, that's a great place to get questions like this answered and chop up these ideas. And so I would encourage you, check out our website, look at our open life groups or fill out a connection card and say, I'm interested. We'll get you in a group where you can talk about deep stuff like this and find some answers, find some friends and find a place to grow in God. So back in Romans 11, we can now see that Paul has once again expertly answered these questions about his own nation. God's remnant and the rest prove that God will patiently preserve part of Israel. Though they deny him, God stays true. He's patient with them and also with you. So whenever we read and study the Bible, we need to remember to ask God, who am I and how do I live this out? Um, well, one thing struck me as I was trying to figure this passage out and, and praying over it. it. If God is this patient and this kind with his people, I should take a hint to be more patient with myself and with other people too. I'm gonna make mistakes, sometimes willfully, but I can trust that God's gonna pick me back up brush me off, give me his hand, and then help me not to make those same mistakes again. If God can be that patient with me, I should be patient with others. Though they deny him, God stays true. He's patient with them, and he's patient with you. So as you go today, I just think, what, what about you? What is God saying to you? Maybe you need to just do an honest self-examination and say, have I accepted Jesus as my rescuer from sin, from brokenness? Have I accepted Jesus as my master? Be honest. And if you haven't, like this passage says, there's still time. And if you'd want to talk with any of us after the service here, or you want to write a note, and we'd love to meet with you midweek, don't let that go by without following up on that. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I have trusted Christ as my Savior and Lord, but Maybe you just need to follow in our Heavenly Father's footsteps a little bit closer. 
Maybe you could be kinder like he is, more patient, more forgiving. Take a tip from God's example and let these virtues be lived out in your life. Um, I had to throw just one more application in because I just kept thinking about it through this passage. Maybe I need to be kinder and maybe we just need to be a little more focused on loving God's Jewish people. I, you know, they have a special place in God's heart. And even though many of them missed the Messiah, there's still time to find him. So let's represent Jesus with love and with thoughtfulness. Though they deny him, God stays true. He's patient with them and he's patient with you. Join with me in a word of prayer, if you would. Father, we thank you for your patience. God, you are a God who is totally in control. And we thank you that you are not spiraling out of control. You are not beholden to culture's whims and trends. God, you knew, you know exactly what you're doing and you stick to it. And we can trust in you and on your dependability. God, we thank you for your control, but we also thank you for your kindness. God, thank you that when even when we didn't deserve to be included and invited into your eternal family, that you still extended that invitation anyway. God, we pray that you would give us courage to extend that kindness to other people, to be patient with others like you've been patient with us, and to be forgiving like we have been forgiven. We pray these things and we thank you. In your name, amen.